it's that proactive trust. Like we talked about that before, but like it's that leader. If, if you want as a leader, want your employee to feel comfortable and proactively tell you when they might be struggling, you have to tend the garden of trust way early on because you want them to come to you and say, let me just put the cards on the table. I'm struggling. And, you know, this is the deal. Welcome to The Change, where we share stories and inspiration from business leaders and people making positive work-life changes. Our focus today is on leading with compassion and the importance that empathetic leadership plays in today's business environment. Everybody will have issues surrounding their mental health at some point in their lives. For many, managing one's anxiety and mental health is a full-time job. Leaders and managers that understand this and practice compassion truly make a difference not just in that employee's life, but in setting a healthy precedent that other businesses can follow. For too long, the mental health conversation has been ignored and stifled. Our health industry is focused on physical well-being more than mental well-being, and many mental health issues are treated with medication rather than addressing the root of the issue. It's vitally important in this pandemic era where we've collectively suffered tremendous trauma that we all work together to normalize the mental health conversation. And to that effect, and in the spirit of openness, I want to share my own personal mental health struggles. During 2020, with the pandemic raging globally, I pushed myself extremely hard as the CEO of my company to do everything I could to ensure the financial health of my business and to avoid having to lay off any of my employees. I started having anxiety attacks, which I had never had before, to the point where they were being triggered quite easily. It wasn't until I sought help and through the practice of mindfulness that I was able to work through this, and I've not suffered any anxiety attacks thankfully for quite some time. The key for me was that I found an outlet with my coach Kristen Taylor, where I was able to safely talk about what I was going through. It's so important that people feel that there are people that they can talk to and where people can feel like they are not alone in their struggles. Our guest today, Michelle E. Dickinson, is a very passionate mental health advocate, a TEDx speaker, and a published author of her memoir entitled Breaking Into My Life. She's a change maker with mental health experience and a deep commitment to fully empowering people around their well-being. Michelle, welcome to The Change. So happy to be here, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're so happy that you're here. So we're focusing on leading with compassion today and the work you do with companies to help them implement strategies that improve employee psychological resilience. So before we get into the work you're doing today, I, I think it's important to share your backstory. Can you tell us yeah. a bit about yourself, like where you grew up, what your home life was like? Sure, sure. Yeah, mental mental health and mental illness has been like the tapestry of my entire life from as little as I can remember. I grew up with a mother who had bipolar disorder, and so she probably started to demonstrate signs and symptoms of that illness when I was as little as four, I think I remember. Mm -hmm. And so that experience shaped me because I spent my entire life, like my entire childhood, young adult years caring for her. Um, supporting her and I got to witness what it was like to have that mania and that depression and really understand what mental illness looked like. So that experience shaped me, led me to give my TED talk about my mom, something I never mm-hmm. really spoke about, like yeah. went through my whole career, didn't really ever talk about it. And then someone found out about it and like nominated me to give a TED talk. So I was like, I guess okay. I'm talking about this. So I gave the TED talk and then I uh, found myself really just so moved by the reaction that talk got because people felt uh, they would come up to me and they felt connected to because I yeah. sort of went first that, you know, just mm-hmm. like you just shared a little bit about yourself. Like there, there's a relatedness that's present when you are vulnerable and that inspired me to then go and write my memoir, which was, um, a very long and cathartic process, but something that I knew I needed to do um, to support people and have people realize that mental illness is not something that we should be fearing or ashamed of. 
uh, really humanize it. That was the goal of the book. Um, and then simultaneously, I was helping to lead a mental health employee resource group at my Fortune 500 company. So I got to sort of see what firsthand action looked like in the workplace when we were trying to eradicate stigma. Some things did work, some things did not work. I was paying attention and it was uh, very it was very inspiring to me to, to think that we could create more cultures where people felt like they could be themselves and not have to pretend. Yeah. Um, but then I'm adopted. And, and so I never thought I would ever suffer from a mental illness myself. Cause I okay. was like, well, I'm a, I'm her adopted daughter. Right. But then a life event came along, um, my divorce and I found myself depressed and I had always had a healthy relationship to reaching out for clinical support. So mm-hmm. I did. And that's when I was diagnosed with depression. And it just made me realize that like nobody is immune to a mental illness, no matter what, like this was, this was a life event that happened. So all of those experiences really shaped me into who I am and, and really uh, lit a fire within me to want to do more with my story and, um, you know, my passion for mental health. Yeah, I mean, you touched on something earlier that I, I want to revisit, which is you said how you never spoke about it. And I'm, I'm curious, did you was that coming from like a feeling of shame, like a belief system around shame? Or I mean, did it even not even go that that far where you didn't really speak about it just because it was just something that nobody really spoke about? Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, it was definitely, and I write about this in my book, it was definitely a shame thing. Like we didn't want to talk about it. Like I didn't want anyone to know what was really going on at home. So I concealed it quite well because I didn't want to be embarrassed, ridiculed, made fun of. But then as I got older and I got into my career, I was sort of like, well, that didn't affect me. Look at me. I'm actually doing okay. Look, Mm -hmm. I have a good job. I didn't, I didn't like, you know, I'm a contributing member of society. I'm okay. Um, but I never like unpacked it (laughs) until I started doing self-discovery work. And then I started to see the impact that that experience had on my life. So, um, I think there was a lot, it was a mixture of things like denial that I, I had made it and, um, very young, not, you weren't supposed to talk about it. So it's sort of why I didn't, I guess. Yeah. I, I could definitely relate to what you said about, um, you know, what you feeling like it didn't really have an impact on your life. I mean, I, yeah. I could look back, um, you know, because there, there's been some mental health in, in my family as well. And I, I think I, you know, lived my whole life thinking, you know, that, you know, stuff I went through as a child, like it, it didn't really have any bearing on me today, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of feel like over the last year with, uh, a lot of the, the personal work I've been doing that I can really see, um, a, a very clear timeline in my history of where, you know, these things have popped up where I'm like, you know, yeah, I think maybe if I had a different upbringing and maybe I would have recognized it a little bit more, but Mm-hmm. I want to read an excerpt um, from your book, Breaking Into My Life, if I may. Mm-hmm. Today, I have a brand new outfit to wear. I'm looking forward to seeing the reaction of the kids in my class. Finally, I'm going to look as good as the other seventh graders. A new boy, Wesley, likes me, so I can't wait to see him today. I have to hurry. I'm meeting my friend Katie so that we can walk to school together. I get dressed and go downstairs. Immediately, I can tell that mom is in an even darker place. Her moods have been erratic lately. I didn't really think much about it until now. I should have been paying more attention. I should have seen this coming. Can you go back to this time and describe what that was like as a middle schooler to see your mom suffer this way and at the same time try to have a normal childhood. Yeah, that's a that's a poignant moment right there. Um you know, so much of my childhood I spent running to get out of the house because I didn't want to I didn't want to be present to the sadness, to the yeah. pain that was there because I related to my house as just a painful dark place, you know? So I tried mm-hmm. to leave as much as I could so I wasn't I wouldn't have to be around it, but you know, that moment um, was frustrating because what followed was I couldn't go to school. My father asked me to stay home. 
and be with her because she was too fragile, right? Too fragile to be alone, but not sick enough to be hospitalized. And those moments were always so hard for me because that was my role. My dad had to go to work. He had to, you know, nothing could compromise his, his job. We knew this as a family and that's whatever we had to do. We did. Um, but you know, seeing my mom suffer and not being able to console her and see her pain and not being able to relieve that pain is excruciating. Um, feel like you're sitting on your hands and there's nothing you can do. How much do you define, you know, the empathy that you, you practice today that, that you recognize within yourself? How much of that comes from watching your mom suffer the way that she did? Oh, a ton, a ton. I mean, I try so hard to reach people to have them understand how hard it is to have a mental illness, that it's real. It's not an excuse. It's not a cop out. I mean, I feel like I spend a lot of time explaining this to some people who believe it's a matter of toughness. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of power through, you know, um, don't let it get you down. And, And it's like, no, if you know what it looks like and you know what it feels like, you, you understand it and you can have more compassion for people. Um, I, I tell this story how when I was diagnosed with depression, I was hopeful that my boss would be compassionate when I told her, cause I was like, I'm going to go first. And she wasn't. And I'll never forget that feeling of not having compassion extended to me. Um, so I know yeah. what that feels like. And I never want that to happen. You know, if I can do something about it, that's why I do this work. Absolutely. And so I'd like to read another excerpt from your book. Staying home for most kids is a gift. It's not that for me. I know what this means and I know what's coming. So I think you're, you were describing, um, you know, a time where, where most kids would get to stay home, um, whether it was a snow day or whatever. But I think you mentioned earlier, did did you say you were about four years old when you kind of started to see that your mom was suffering because that's a that's a really early age to be able to have that emotional intelligence to to recognize that yeah she was just very different she was she was very her behavior wasn't um it wasn't calm it was erratic it was um you know running around the house it was acting silly and then it was sleeping for days Mm -hmm. right and like why don't you want to get up don't you want to go outside, you know? So yeah, I remember that pattern. I remember her being definitely different than I knew her to be. Yeah. You said something else too, that I think, you know, the way that I look at it, I I really see this as one of the barriers to normalizing the mental health conversation. You said something about um, having to have toughness or, or gutting it out. And that seems to be a very well-known theme regarding the mental health conversation where, oh, you know, somebody's being dramatic or whatever, just, just tough it out. Like, you know, you'll get through it or whatever. I mean, can you talk to us a little bit about your, your feelings around that? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it, it, it comes down to our knowledge of mental illness and our ignorance of mental illness. That's how I, that's how I see it. I see it very black and white. Someone who thinks that it is about toughness does not have firsthand experience or is in denial that they've ever experienced something like this. So I try to even have compassion for the people that don't, that, that are ignorant, unfortunately. Right. Because that's what it comes down to. We have a society that says, don't talk about it. Just deal with it. Push through. Um, Oh, you're going to go to the funny farm. If you talk about mental illness and you're sick and, and it's, it's sad. I I had a conversation with a, a leader about a month ago who said that, who said, you know, I don't know. Um, I've never had to deal with this. I've always been very, very resilient and tough and I just power through. And it's like, like, it's not about that. It's about, it's about like, if you truly had a mental health imbalance and you ignored it, like you're setting yourself up for disaster. Like the fact that you think that you can power through everything just tells me that you don't really understand it. 
You know, you don't understand what it feels like. You don't understand that it really is, um, you know, it's just another organ and sometimes it needs a little support, you know, and it's not about being tough. Yeah, and I feel like that would cause somebody going through it to feel more alone, like that they have, you know, that they're on their own to work through it. And, you know, the other part of it, um, too, it, I feel like there was no middle ground where, you know, now I think there people are starting to recognize there's a whole bunch of different flavors of mental health issues, right? Um, mm-hmm. de- from, you know, mild depression all the way up to schizophrenia. And I think, you know, the what people maybe had thought about mental health issues, you know, before people started actually talking about it was you were either OK or you were one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Right. 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 And I, I try really hard to have people understand that mental health is a continuum and we should move away from it being mentally well or mentally ill, because at any given time in our lifetime, like you explained very vulnerably in your introduction, you know, the pressure of life shows up, a pandemic shows up and pushes us like, so we're not, you know, in this perfect zone of mental health, hundred percent healthy. But honestly, I want people to believe that we glide across this continuum and any given time we're feeling good or we're not feeling so good. And when we're not feeling so good, what can we do to help ourselves? And when those things don't work, have no fear or shame or embarrassment about reaching out and getting support. Because mm-hmm. we're just human beings and the brain is just the brain. It's just an organ, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you cut your arm or you broke a leg or something, you're going to go to the doctor. You're not going to you're not going to just tough it through. Right. So we exactly. treat, you know, I think we're going to get into this in a little bit, but it's I just find it interesting that we treat physical well-being uh, a little bit different than mental well-being when at the end of the day, it's well-being. Yes. OK, so um Moving on a little bit, uh, you know, later on, then you entered a career working in mental health for Fortune 500 companies. So tell us about your professional background and how it led to the work you're doing today. So correction, I actually spent 19 years in the pharmaceutical industry in medical education and regulatory affairs. Okay. So I was not in the mental health space. I was just um, I was in a a corporate role, you know, Mm -hmm. working at various companies. And so it was the, the real thing, the real change for me was when I got present to how important my message was when I gave the Ted talk, that's when everything started to change for me Uh, because I was opening up, I was talking about it. I was helping to change the culture in my company through the work I was doing in the employee resource group. And then, um, I just became a very outspoken advocate. So I was talking about mental health and then I was diagnosed with it. And so all of those experiences led me to the point where I was like, okay, I am ignited to do something about what's going on in the workplace. And the fact that so many people suffer in silence and, you know, don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and end things, they end their lives is just not, is not something I want to sit by and watch. So that's when I decided to leave the industry altogether and go out and create my company, Trifecta Mental Health. That's great. And in describing your work, you've used the term psychological resilience. So what is psychological resilience and why should employers spend time focusing on it? So in the workplace, um, it's more about psychological safety. It's about being able to be 100% yourself, feeling like you um, you can have a trusting rapport with your leader, have uh, the ability to to share when you're when you might not be doing well without fear of, oh, you're going to be perceived as less capable than your colleague. Um, Psychological safety is so important. And that sense of compassion in the workplace is so important. So, you know, leaders and, and it's not that hard to do. It's like it's like we are employees before we're an employee number. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's all about the, the way we lead the, the trust that we are building with one another, the, um, the compassion in which we lead. Yeah. Things do need to get done. Absolutely. Um, but you're not going to get hundred percent out of your employees if they are struggling with something and they're trying to conceal it because now, now they have an added layer of, you know, trying to protect what they're concealing and they're even more distracted. So, 
why not just build a better relationship and more trust? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, I don't know if it's maybe a very American thing, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's been this historical focus on productivity, right? And, you know, what, what can we get out of employees? And that's the mindset, you know, I, I hope to be impacting, you know, with this podcast, um, you know, changing that paradigm, changing the thought process. So it's less about, you know, productivity. What can we squeeze out of the employee? I mean, you know, we spend our adult lives, the majority of them focused on our career and, you know, we, we bring stuff to the table, like our parts of our personality. So, you know, I, I, you know, through this conversation and other conversations, I hope to be able to identify ways that, uh, we can, we can make an impact where managers are focusing less on, you know, employee productivity and more on, you know, how could we honor the employee? How could we let them be who they are and bring to the table the, the, the strengths that they bring to the table? Um, mm-hmm. and oh, absolutely. And I also think it, that, you know, someone at your level who like is responsible for an organization has such a pivotal role just in, just in being human and sharing your own story, you create a tone within the organization that it's okay to be a human being. Yeah. You know, that's huge. I actually interviewed a gentleman who is a CEO of a company. He caused, he literally caused a ripple effect just talking about his crippling anxiety because yeah. everybody felt like, Oh my goodness. Like if that guy at the top has experienced that I should have no shame in the fact that I'm dealing with the same thing. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Such a, you know, I, I feel personally myself, I, I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to, to model how we do it at my company. And, and then through this podcast, I, I hope other, you know, leaders are listening and, and can see that, yeah, you know, you don't have to be a certain type of CEO you know, you could bring aspects of your personal life into your leadership and model that for your employees. And I, I've seen that at my company. I mean, since since I've, you know, last year changed a lot of how I've been leading, I, I really see how my team's been responding. That's and awesome. it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing to see it. When we come back, how Michelle managed to overcome depression when she realized she could use her experiences to help others. Stay with us. I'm Adam Baru, and you're listening to The Change from EIQ Media. Coming in January 2022. Have you ever faced something so jarring, so overwhelming, and seemingly so hopeless that all you thought was, how will I ever get through this? Hi. This is Kristen Taylor, host of How I Made It Through, my new podcast that shares stories of ordinary people who've navigated some not-so-ordinary circumstances. When life throws heavy blows, we only truly make it through when we are truly willing to go through all of it, feeling it, and being transformed by it. The stories shared will enthrall and inspire you. They may even provide the roadmap you've been searching for. How I Made It Through will be available January 2022. To learn more, simply visit eiqmediallc.com forward slash how I made it through. Welcome back to The Change. I'm Adam Baru. We were discussing leadership and how important it is for managers and leaders to model vulnerability so that it can open the door to trust and openness. When managers don't practice compassion and expect people to always bring bubbliness and high energy into their work, it can exacerbate the struggle that someone may be experiencing. All right, so you spoke before about your divorce and and the depression that you suffered at that time. Um, and this, you know, you told me this in a previous conversation that when you were going through this time in your life and experiencing clinical depression, um, 
you were still working and you described your your boss for me earlier but uh in particular you you earlier told me about a performance review that you had around this time mm-hmm. and i think what if i'm remembering correctly i think what you told me was how your boss gave you a somewhat critical review because you were not the bubbly happy michelle that you normally were <laughs> so i you know personally i think this highlights the specific problem that happens when managers do not show compassion or empathy in their leadership. You told me this was the moment you realized you wanted to help change how people are, are treated in the workplace. Um, you know, and it, it gets me, it gets me thinking, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, asking myself, like, how can I be a more empathetic leader? I, I feel like it's going to be a, an, a forever work in progress. Like yeah. it's not like you, you know, we're going to do these things and then I'm done. Now I'm an empathetic leader, right? I, it's just, it's an ongoing, what more can I do? What more can I do? Right. And I, I actually, when we, when we earlier had the conversation about this, um, it got me thinking, you know, this might be one of those good examples to highlight, like a, a very practical way that managers can lead with empathy, which performance reviews are very interesting. I mean, number one, you're measuring people like uniformly, right? Yeah. Um, and it's usually, you know, how's the employee doing in terms of their productivity and their responsibilities in terms of their job description. Mm-hmm. And so it, it got, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this afterwards and talking with the, you know, my partners about, you know, how could we, yeah, from a management perspective, like, yeah, we want to measure that employees are, you know, able to do their basic job function, but at the same time, provide a way, number one, for them, for employees to tell us, you know, how are we doing? Right. I, I've, I've been thinking about maybe changing, like not doing performance reviews in the traditional sense of them, but maybe something like a progress report where, you know, we spend time with the employee working through their goals. and And really that's what the, performance review or the progress report should measure is mm-hmm. hey how how well are we doing as leaders to help you achieve your own professional and perhaps personal goals you know what what are your thoughts around that yeah i think um i i i know for myself uh, so that whole experience for me was like very jarring because i had always been one of the employees who exceeded expectations so to be receiving a negative review based on my bubbliness yeah. <laughs> was so incredibly frustrating it was it angered me and upset me at the same time i sort of froze and didn't say anything but um that actually and th- so this ties into your question um that actually now looking back shines a light on her lack of even self-awareness and her own relationship to mental health. Mm-hmm. I'm crystal clear. I mean, because somebody who is in touch with who they are and aware of their own mental health and aware of their own um, relationship to mental health would never lead that way. Yeah. Um so that just that that was a gift actually when I look back and say wow like because how many other leaders are managing for performance in situations where employees are struggling with an emotional challenge right. which only then exacerbates that experience for them and for the leader so I think leaders need to become to be better leaders and create a better environment. They need to become more self-aware. They need to be aware of their biases. These are two things that I touch on in my leader program specifically because how do you expect someone to lead in a different way if they bring to their table their own experiences or um, interactions with you know mental health situations or maybe none at all and they're leaning on what the media is feeding them about a mental illness we have to check everybody there and say let's look at the basics you know what's your relationship with mental health what's your experience with it because that's the seat from which you will lead whether or not it's verbal it's subconscious then you know it's a tone it's a it's a, a way of being um So I think that's really important. I remember when I first started my company, Adam, I was talking to a girlfriend of mine. She's a very dear friend. And she's like, I just don't understand what you do. What is it that you do, Michelle? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, it's like this. Like, I I want there to be more compassion in the workplace. And I want employees to have a healthy relationship to mental health. And I want them to also know what they can do to preserve their well-being. 
And she goes, well, that's great. But like, what if my my star employee gets sick with a mental illness? Like the widgets still have to get made. Sure. And I go, okay, um, but your star employee is suffering with something and probably needs support. She's like, but I don't understand. Like the widgets still have to get made. So what am I supposed to do? Just allow that? I'm like, okay. So finally we went back and forth, back and forth. And I finally said to her, I go, um, Susan, do you believe that mental health is real or a cop out? And she goes, I don't know. Mm, and I go, oh my goodness. Like how many other leaders have this perception? So when they encounter an employee who's struggling, they're thinking in the back of their mind by default, this is a cop out. Like, so the, it's just, it's, it's awakening to yeah. realize that so many people, especially people in the seat of leadership responsible for other people um, can have these biases and these these um, belief systems. And that's from the seat that they lead. Yeah. And, and you're you're touching at the heart of it. And, you know, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but again, going back to. So this metaphor that you were just describing, you know, the widgets have to be made. So what if that employee had a physical ailment? or got COVID and they have to yeah. be away for the same period of time. Like, why is it okay that, you know, we are so willing to accept that, but when it comes to a mental health issue, it's, it's again, that same mentality, just why can't this person tough it out? You know, yeah. why, why is it now becoming my problem that uh, I have to now manage this employee around their mental health issues when, you know, we don't treat physical issues the same way. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. Why, why mm -hmm. do we treat it that way? You know, it's not fair. It's not right. Um, and even worse is the, the, the scar that people like a lot of people don't want to disclose because they're so afraid that they're not going to be eligible for promotion. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be viewed as an equal to their peer. It's like the biggest myth out there, like employees who, can successfully manage and navigate their mental illness are just as effective in their jobs. But, but you know, on the surface, a leader might think otherwise and not give them and not like give them a shot, you know? So it touches, it's, it's, you know, it just touches so many different aspects. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, I really hope that, uh, you know, through these conversations, you know, more and more people can recognize that, you know, we, we have to change the way that we're addressing it. And, you know, for us, you know, my, my management team is, you know, that, that is what I look to in terms of executing on our vision of leading with empathy. So one of the things that I look for most when I'm interviewing somebody for a management position is emotional intelligence. It's kind of a hard thing to measure. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think if you can just have no a normal conversation with somebody where you, you get into some topics that may be a little outside of the norm in terms of an interview, but it's really trying to understand, you know, where, where's this person at and their emotional intelligence, because that, that's so needed desperately with management in order to execute a, you know, leading with compassion, leading with empathy. Yeah. You know, another way I look at my role as a manager, and I'm not alone in thinking this way, but you know, my role is really to get the best out of my team, to enable them to get mm -hmm. out of their way. And mm -hmm. so I feel it's my duty to, you know, address all aspects of how I can elevate somebody's, and I, you know, I don't want to use the word productivity because I think it focuses more on what they're doing, but an employee's overall, I guess, experience and yes. their own recognition of the value they bring into a company. Everybody's different. Everybody's yeah. going to bring in their own personal history. And I think that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of unique benefits. It's it's very interesting. I used to work with a woman who was um, autistic, mm -hmm. a brilliant woman, like brilliant, like the the analytical sense that she had. It's like, I think if if leaders could showcase the amazing attributes of their employees, it's a win-win, right? Like she was, she was always so, um, fulfilled when she was tapped into for her unique contribution, you know, it's so basic, but like, you really have to get to know someone to really, you know, have them show up in a way that supports, you know, what they want to do and also what you need to have done. 
um, and celebrate them for who they are. Oh yeah. I, so I, I've worked with, um, people that have been on the spectrum and I, I truly think, um, that that can be their superpower, much like, you know, people that experience different issues and, and just, they approach their work and their life in a different way. Like it's a good thing that we bring this history, this personal history into the work that we do, because, you know, if we can find where our, you know, out of a place of suffering, like we, we've created a way of thinking that really is your, you know, your own individual superpower. I mean, imagine if you just change that perspective where rather than something being a weakness, it actually becomes your strength. And I've shared this in, in an earlier episode of this podcast where, you know, for so many years, I, I, I've always been a very sensitive person since I was a kid. And I, I had really thought for so long, there was such a deep belief system around that. I thought that was a weakness. I thought I had to be tough. I thought I had to, you know, be assertive at times, maybe even aggressive to get my point across. Mm-hmm. But I, I really look now w- with that as being a strength because mm-hmm. um, out of that comes this, you know, for me, at least the ability to feel what others may be feeling. And so I, mm-hmm. it, it's helped me lead better. Um, awesome. You know, and, and kind of more on this topic of leading with empathy. So I was, Having a conversation uh, recently with my business coach, Kristen Taylor, and we spent some time exploring the blind spots that leading with empathy can introduce. Things like boundary setting or how when you show up as a leader with empathy, it can be challenging to work through conflict resolution. So what do you think some other blind spots might be? And do you have any ideas on how a leader could mitigate them? Like you don't know what you don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I'm just going to revert back to what I said before. I think leaders need to be the the most self-aware on your team. I mean, because if you're self-aware, then you have a different perspective on how to interact with people, right? Your triggers are there. You're aware of your triggers. You can lead in a different way. Um, you can model better behavior, but you have to be self-aware. I mean, I think that that's one of the biggest things is people say, oh, well, I have all of this rich experience behind me and all of these degrees, but have you looked in the mirror and done the work and try to figure out, you know, why you are the way you are? Um, Because it's gonna absolutely make you more relatable to people. You're gonna connect in a more genuine way. It's not gonna be all facade. You're going to be authentic because you're connected to who you are. So I, I think it all is rooted in that self-awareness, but it's not for everyone. A lot of people are just like, oh, I'm, I'm good, you know, but honestly, I would challenge every every owner like yourself to really say, I want my team to be as self-aware as they can be because we all bring our stuff to the table. And when we're self-aware, it's going to impact how effective we can lead. Yeah, I, I'm going to say something It may be ignorant, but I, I want to put it out there. And I'm, you know, I'm curious how many business schools teach self-awareness and empathy. Anybody who has an answer, please send me a message at, you know, um, adam.baru at eiqmediallc.com. Um, that's, I, I'm just, you know, I just thought about that. And uh, I think it is something that should be taught. Um, yeah. Much like you're teaching economics in business school, like why, why not teach the importance of leading with empathy and that self-awareness? Yeah. On mentalhealth.gov, um, they have a myths and facts page, and I was particularly interested in this myth. People with mental health needs, even those who are managing their mental illness, cannot tolerate the stress of holding down a job. So how do you respond to that? such a myth right it's such a myth it's it's so but you know if you ask if you polled uh, a bunch of leaders they probably not see that that is a myth you know i mean therein lies part of the problem um yeah it's it's just so unfortunate i can't tell you how many people i know who have me either major depression or just depression and they're managing it and they're contributing members of society and they're functioning just just like anyone else and performing you know, at 
the best of their ability, which is pretty, which is pretty good. So, you know, it's so such a limiting belief system. It really is. Um, and you've cited an article uh, to me stating that for every $1 spent towards treatment for common mental illnesses, there is a return of $4 in improved health and productivity. So can you explain this math for us and you know, tell us what you think contributes to this return? Well, you want it. So when you think about productivity in the workplace and you think about employees, um, you know, it, so mental health is, is one of those things that, um, you know, our insurance, I don't want to go, go into the, the, the deficits in the insurance uh, system, but um, if mental illness is addressed proactively, if people are aware of how they're doing and they have no challenge with reaching out for support, they can get the care earlier in the process and mm-hmm. not have to hit the moment of crisis that could force them into hospitalization, et cetera. So it's about yeah. the proactive care and keeping employees engaged and in the workplace performing versus going out on disability. And then those disability costs, you know, pile in and then, you know, mm-hmm. and then the return to work, then you have, you know, the, the probability of relapse. I mean, a lot of times, yeah. I mean, there's so many complexities around mental illness that, you know, that's why I'm a huge advocate for the proactive conversation about it, right? Yeah. What is what is it and and how do we preserve it rather than wait until we hit crisis and then, oh, well, we have to get a doctor. Oh, well, that's too hard. Okay, then you're in severe crisis and then you got to go to the ER. So yeah. it doesn't work. So it's, it's really all about let's turn up the volume about mental health proactively so people, first of all, have a better relationship to their brain. And no, no shame or embarrassment or fear around getting clinical support earlier in the process and keep them working and healthy and keep them engaged in their life and then engaged in their job. So that's, that's where that comes from is, you know, we want to keep people healthy. So invest in, in doing a little more upfront. I say this to my clients all the time. I, I'm so proud of them for putting more support around mental health for their people now more than ever because of this pandemic a lot of employers feel like benefits and an employee assistance line is sufficient but i'll tell you what it's not especially now we have so many people suffering that you need to turn the volume up and do things in your culture so that they actually pick up the phone and call eap because you can offer it all day long but if they're not comfortable they're never going to call and they're never going to get the support and they're going to suffer in silence and then they're going to go out on disability so there's the opportunity. Yeah. You just gave me the perfect segue to my next question, um, which has been the the traditional role of EAP. And I I think, you know, probably I can answer how you're going to answer, right? Which is that proactivity. And I think that's really the key. You touched on something very important um, because it seems, you know, that management has just wanted to avoid or not get involved, right? It's not their responsibility. They're not maybe an expert on being able to deal with somebody's mental health struggle. So, you know, a lot of just, you know, we have an EAP program, call EAP, right? But the importance of that product, that uh, proactiveness and being able to maybe through having the emotional intelligence recognize, you know, maybe there's something I can do as a leader to get ahead of this and address it before we just you know, just talk to EAP. It's not, you know, it's not within my realm to discuss your mental health issues with you. Right. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So this is, this is a key factor in my leader training because there's so much trepidation that leaders have about having these conversations. The reality is the leader can do so much. And so can all of us as people with loved ones who we suspect are suffering. Listening is the biggest thing gift you can give someone who might be struggling. You don't have to feel like you need to fix it and you don't have to feel like you got to be a clinician and diagnose it and send them on a, on a path to recovery. That's not your job. Your job is to listen, to hear what they have to say and to remind them of what resources are available to them. In that moment, they just need to be heard and they need to be gotten. And we can do that just by our generosity and listening to them. And then it's to the point where, you know, I teach leaders all the time, just listen to them and say, how can we support you? Simple as that. How can we support you? You as an officer of the company, how can we support you? Um, 
and then just listen again, like almost like shut up for 40 seconds and let them talk. Like you don't have to come in there and go, well, back when I, my cousin Susie was diagnosed with anxiety, she did this, this, and this, and saw this doctor and took this drug. Here you go. No, that's not what you do. And I think a lot of us come from a good place and want to do as much as we can, but that's where we get in trouble. So listening is the first thing and bridging them to the care that your organization provides is, is the second thing I would tell leaders to do. Yeah, and this goes back to what you said at the beginning of this conversation, which is, you know, one of the one of the roles of leadership is to create that that safe space, um, and and that's really all we have to do sometimes. Yeah, you've created a five step program for cultivating a culture of compassion in the workplace. So, will you describe your program for us? Sure. So that's actually um, something that I have on my website. They're they're really just five tips. Uh, The first one is um, establishing at the top of the organization that you are going to be a stigma-free environment, a stigma-free organization, um, and that, uh, you know, there's going to be policies that back that up. Right. So it's not just going to be we're going to say it, but we're going to back it up with policies. And then, as I shared with you, as you courageously mentioned in the beginning of this uh, podcast, have a leader go first. That's that's one of the biggest things I recommend to people. Have a leader go first, be vulnerable, tell their story and start turning up the volume around well-being and mental health in the workplace as if it's a normal conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you give people permission to talk about themselves when you talk about you. You know, even, you know, even around a a lunch table or whatever, like, can you believe that our our leader said that? Like, oh, well, you know, I suffered from that. It's just going to change a lot of things. It's going to change how open people are about talking about it. So that's another thing you can do. And then um, I'm a big advocate for employee resource groups Mm -hmm. um, for mental health, because whether you're suffering or or you're caring for someone at home, The probability is the majority of your employees have been touched by mental health. So why not give them a community to come together and support one another and and like, you know, not feel so alone or embarrassed. So I'm a big fan of employee resource groups and then even platforms for storytelling, having them. Adam needs to have everyone on his podcast to tell their story. Because honestly, there's there's so much um, healing in telling your story and and showing up and and seeing the human side of each other can really um, build a lot of cohesion and connection within the company. Yeah. And in regards to that storytelling, I and this is a plug for the moth. I have just become an absolute addict of the moth and the storytelling that is done on that podcast is done so well and people open themselves up and you know this is why i love doing what i'm doing now is you know being a part of that opening up being a part of that conversation because it's i think it's so important to model that and you know good segue for my next question um or point you know prince harry and Meghan markle are working with oprah winfrey to produce um, a newer docu-series on Apple TV Plus called The Me You Can't See. And, you know, I think it's I think it's pretty compelling and powerful. In the first episode, Prince Harry is interviewed and he describes his own experience with mental health issues, referring to the mental health issues as the invisible injury. We've spoken on that topic before um, in this conversation, but, you know, it's almost like, again, you know, because we cannot physically see the suffering people may be feeling inside that we shouldn't talk about it or it's not real. You know, I, I think that's the thing too. There's sometimes there's this belief that just because you can't see it and somebody's describing pain they're going through, that it's almost like it's not happening or it's not real. This person's being dramatic. Yeah. Um, what, what can businesses or business leaders do to normalize the mental health conversation in the workplace? And I'm, I'm emphasizing that word normalize. And I think it's a lot of what we talked about here, but Mm -hmm. just, you know, creating that dialogue with employees among themselves to know that, Hey, you know, it's okay. It's okay to talk about this. I don't Mm -hmm. have to hide who I am and try to be something I'm not. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's that proactive trust. Like we talked about that before, but like 
it's that leader. If, if you want as a leader, want your employee to feel comfortable and proactively tell you when they might be struggling, you have to tend the garden of trust way early on because you want them to come to you and say, let me just put the cards on the table. I'm struggling. And you know, this is the deal. So, but that's not going to happen. You know, people think that you can change a culture on a dime. You can't do that. You actually need to have your leaders be building that trust and doing, doing the work to create that rapport so that when life shows up for them, they, they feel comfortable asking for what they need and you can support them. Yeah. So I want to ask one last question. Mm-hmm. If you could change anything about your background or how you were raised, would you? No. In the moment I went through it, yes. But now, honestly, it's a gift. It shaped me. Right. Um, yeah. There's a powerful documentary called um, The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive. Um there's a famous actor in there who, and Carrie Fisher was in that and Carrie Mm -hmm. Fisher suffered from bipolar disorder. And they asked Carrie Fisher the same thing. And they said, you know, if you could wave a wand and have the bipolar be gone, would you? And she said, no, because it makes me who I am. And so I would say the same thing. It made, it made me who I am. It lit the fire within me to be the change I want to see in the world through my work. And, um, and I, I just believe that life is happening for us, not to us. Well, Michelle, it's been such an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your personal journey and about the work that you're doing today to help us normalize mental health issues. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Adam. Michelle E. Dickinson is a well-being strategist and passionate mental health advocate and lives in New Jersey. She is focused on normalizing mental health issues in the workplace and works with organizations to enhance employee psychological resilience. You can find out more about Michelle on our website, eiqmediallc.com slash the change. Our theme song and sound engineering was provided by Shane Sufridi. You can listen to more of Shane's music at www.shanesufridi.com. If you have a story to share about leading with empathy or want to tell us what you think about our podcast, send me an email at thechange at eiqmediallc.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on The Change. The Change is produced and distributed by EIQ Media, LLC. Elevate your emotional IQ with podcasts and content focused on leadership, mental health, entrepreneurship, and more.